Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Well, the 2020 Belgian Grand Prix wasn't the most thrilling race that's ever taken place at Spa, or ever, but it nevertheless included some intriguing stories and subplots. At the front, one person who no doubt did find the 44 laps around Spa very exciting was Mercedes driver Lewis Hamilton, who led from start to finish to record his 89th F1 career win, with Valtteri Bottas well adrift in second. There are a couple of moments of danger for Hamilton, the start and a safety car restart, the cause of which I'll get to shortly, but he negotiated each with relative ease and did not give Bottas an opportunity to attack. The race was interrupted after 10 laps when Antonio Giovinazzi had a massive accident at turn 14, where he dropped the rear of his Alfa Romeo on the exit all by himself and smashed into the outside wall. As his car speared back across the track, one of its loose wheels hit the Williams of George Russell, who was left with little time to react, and the impact broke his front suspension and sent him into the wall on the outside. Fortunately, both drivers were okay. Once the wreckage and debris had been cleared away, Hamilton aced the restart and Bottas's final real chance was gone. This was because the leaders didn't stop thereafter and, despite a few concerns from both Mercedes drivers about the state of their tyres late on, given what had happened so recently in the British Grand Prix in similar circumstances, they came home to give Mercedes what is only, remarkably, their second 1-2 in 2020. Max Verstappen tried to keep touch, but he dropped back as each stint wore on and eventually finished 15 seconds behind Hamilton, frustrated to have spent basically what he said 38 laps managing his tyres on such an exciting track to race on. Daniel Ricciardo led a Renault 4-5 in what was a brilliant race for the team, with Ricciardo showing rapid pace in the final laps as the leaders backed off, and he subsequently stole the fastest lap on the last tour. Elsewhere, Pierre Gasly put in another fine drive, I'm getting quite used to saying that in 2020, let's face it, on what was no doubt an emotional weekend for the Frenchman, as it of course marked the one-year anniversary of Formula 2 racer and Gasly's close friend, Antoine Hubert, losing his life in a crash here at Spa a year ago. And of course, in the pack behind, the Ferrari drivers endured more frustration as their miserable Belgian Grand Prix weekend ended with them finishing P13 and P14 with more curious radio message exchanges for Sebastian Vettel and Charles Leclerc hobbled by two slow pit stops. So, joining Jonathan Noble and me, we are in fairly unique circumstances with this podcast recording. We're actually in a car on our way back to our accommodation in Jalais. So if you can hear any rain falling quite heavily as we hoped it would do during that really dull Belgian Grand Prix and uh, that's what that is and um, the reason why is the wi-fi is not very good back at the accommodation so we are we are in a car but joining us on a zoom call back from there uh, hopefully I mean I'm, I'm, I'm pretty damp and wet now having walked up the hill from the track so hopefully in their warm and comfortable houses <laughs> are Stuart Codling GP Racing Executive Editor and Autosports F1 reporter Luke Smith now before we get to to you two, and you can you can boast about how comfortable you are, I'm going to come to you, John, because my first question uh, was I was going to be um, was going to ask you as, as we come to the end of the first uh, race in the latest triple header in F1 2020. Um, 
well, how are your energy levels feeling? But actually, how how wet are you, having got absolutely soaked in that rain as we exited the press centre? It's actually been one of the few times in the past four months where I've actually welcomed wearing a face mask because it was the only part of my body that was nice and warm and totally dry. So uh, as as we left the track tonight, um, we were in the media centre. We have to go down some steps to stay away from the paddock through an underground car park. And just as we emerged into the light, I saw what I thought was like a dust cloud or just this huge wall of something. And I said to to, um, Alex, that's not rain, is it? And unfortunately it was. So it's been lashing down as we left the circuit tonight. But uh, it came a bit too late to save the Belgian Grand Prix. Well, uh, John and I were watching it from the media centre. Codders, where did you watch this race from? Was it somewhere particularly comfortable, perhaps with a large glass of red wine and a, a cat or two to keep you comfortable? No cats, I'm afraid. But yeah, I did watch it in the Lord Heseltine Theatre in surround sound with my feet up on the beanbag and my iPad with the uh, F1 app supplying live timing and scorings and my notebook in front of me I kind of thought um this is this is a great way to watch a Grand Prix if you're not there although it would have would have been better if um it were a more interesting and engaging uh Grand Prix obviously battle for the top three wasn't a great deal of fun but as you've alluded to there was some interesting stuff further down the field I suppose it's a bit of a a one-stop Grand Prix as you'd expect nowadays. Absolutely now Luke you were obviously well in the thick of things helping things uh, run smoothly on autosport.com today were you a little bit concerned though at a certain point during that race that you might not have any stories to run tonight given how fairly lifeless that Grand Prix was? (laughs) It did look a bit like that yeah Um, and I find that a wonderful litmus test for how good or bad a Grand Prix is is if I watch it with my housemates. My housemate only knows a little about a bit about F1, like through me and through Drive to Survive, and like even she was at points like times like saying, like, "What is this? this? Is just terrible." And then my mum texts me after the race, is going, "Well, that was boring." And it's like, okay, if, if people like that are going like this is rubbish, then what hope do we have? But uh, no, I mean there were there are a few storylines we could sort of drag out kicking and screaming from from that rather dire Grand Prix. But um, I think Alex, you summed it up perfectly on Twitter when you said that was basically the British Grand Prix minus the tyre failures, really. So I think it's uh, quite fortunate that we maybe had to wait this long for a Grand Prix to be quite that bad this year. I wonder if dragging, kicking and screaming out isn't the, the, the right sort of turn of phrase because on our Zoom screen, it, it does look as if Alex and Johnny are actually not in a car but in a Belgian sex dungeon or something Literally like that. Literally all I can see is John's purple arms. pants. Honestly, honestly yeah, exactly. I, I wish I was having that much fun. Um, the light is actually, the, the dash light has actually gone <laughs> off in the car. We're in total darkness now. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how we get on. I, I, I think you should conserve electricity because if you'd left that light on, then the battery in your car would run out so you wouldn't be able to go on to your onward journey and then you might actually find that you've accidentally parked up in one of Belgium's prime dogging spots and who knows what might happen cool well I'm that that might that should be a great podcast story suitably terrified now thanks Codders but um let's let's get back to the race if we can and we'll start as all good stories well and and, and as all bad stories do as well with the start which was basically really one of Valtteri Bottas's two chances, as it turned out, to get past Lewis Hamilton. Another one was the safety car restart that we'll come to later. But he just couldn't do it. He did look, he did get quite close. He got a good launch off the line, I thought. Um, but Hamilton mentioned that he got a snap of oversteer on the exit, and that's what let Bottas get really close in on the run to Eau Rouge. But he had to back out of it and lift off because he, sort of, as the camera cut away, it was like, oh, suddenly, where, where's he gone? Why, why isn't he running as close as he could? And then actually, the, the drivers were, 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 were running with a tailwind down the Kemmel Strait, which meant that Lewis Hamilton, uh, did what, he, he, what he feared happening, which is what he called a slingshot, I think he also used the phrase shake and bake from uh, Talladega Nights on one of the TV interviews, so I thought it was quite interesting. Um, that couldn't happen. Bottas didn't get that opportunity and uh, and he was able to actually run clear of um, of Max Verstappen in third place. So, John, was your heart sinking at that point that the only real sort of nailed on chance Bottas had hadn't come off? Yeah, and it's utter classic, isn't it? That the weekend when Lewis is in a class of his own, performing brilliantly, uh, nothing going wrong. The one mistake he does make on the exit of uh, La Source is the factor that actually helps him uh, have an easier time on his way to the win. Um, Bottas got too close and couldn't have it. So if Lewis had done the a totally perfect job and had left La Source with a few attempts in front of Valtteri, then Valtteri may well have had a much, much better chance of um, attempting it into Lecom. So, But I think ultimately Lewis is going to win today. I mean, he was 
you know, half a second clear in qualifying. Valtteri just had no response. There was no explanation for it. Uh, was in control today. You know, a few minor lockups, and you know, he talked about being concerned of a Silverstone repeat. But I think these are these are small, ultimately small, minor issues on a utterly dominant weekend. It's funny, isn't it, how when a sports person or a team is is absolutely at the top of their game, it, it feels like nothing can go wrong for them. I, I remember donkeys years ago when I covered the American Le Mans series, uh, Alan, Alan McNish bouncing off a wall at Laguna Seca in the in the Audi R8, and he still won the race. Lewis is pretty much untouchable at the moment because Mercedes are at the top of their game, and, and Lewis doesn't seem to put a foot wrong. And even when he makes a slight error, no one seems to benefit from it. But I think what was interesting off that um, start as well, we saw Lewis make his his snap, I think he called it, coming out of La Source, which uh, obviously allowed Bottas to close a little bit. But Bottas got a really, really good run on Lewis as they were coming down towards uh, Eau Rouge and Radion. But then you just saw Lewis sort of check up a little bit and slow down and scrub off some speed. And that forced Bottas to do the same, which really killed a lot of his momentum. And it's uh, it's a little trick that um, worked for Hamilton, I believe, at the 2017 Belgian Grand Prix, when he had Sebastian Vettel right in his tail. Vettel made a better start. And just coming in towards that, uh, towards the bottom of Eau Rouge and up towards Radion, just if you just scrub off a little bit of speed, and that forces the guy behind you to, to do the same and basically kill that momentum, and then it is it kind of kills the move before it can even be a thing. So yeah, I think that was it just a very clever bit of uh, clever bit of gamesmanship from Lewis Hamilton again. Uh, it's, it's an old, old trick, but one that he's pulled off again perfectly. And yeah, I just think uh, as you guys said, like he's just in such a league of his own right now, and it's little things like that that I think are just. The the extra, I guess, sort of tools within his his uh, skill set as a Formula One driver that mean that right now no one else can get close to his level of performance. Indeed. Well, let's let's return to, to Lewis Hamilton and the, and the end of the Grand Prix and, and, and it's a weekend performance uh, in a moment because I think we should just, uh, before we come to talk about the safety car restart, talk about the incident that caused it. It was Antonio Giovinazzi, as I said at the start, crashing as he came out of uh, the, you know, the sort of the chicane midway through. Well, it's not really a chicane, is it? The, 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 left, um, the right-left sequence turns uh, 13 and 14. And he's, he's flying out. He's being followed by Kimi Raikkonen and George Russell just behind them. And he just loses it on the exit. I mean, it's a really, it's a really fast, difficult left-hander. You can sort of, I think Toto Wolff was asked about it in the, in one of his media sessions, and he said, you know, that's a that's a real, real tough corner. You can understand why, you know, a mistake would be made there. But it just does appear to be complete driver error from Giovinazzi, and it had catastrophic consequences for his race and also for George Russell because um, the wheel, one of the wheels, I think Russell said it was the rear wheel because he was able to tell by the size of the of the wheel coming towards him, bounced across the track. Russell had a split second. He does react, but it's just not enough time, and it takes him out, puts them both out. So, John, I mean, what what did you what did you make of that? It's it's, it's, it's Giovinazzi's second big accident at Spa in a year, but um, it's just the fact that it was just again and, and in quite not one hundred percent similar circumstances to last year, but it was an accident again where he's had one by himself. Yeah, an accident by himself. I thought what what I thought was interesting about it was is the kind of accident we're seeing a lot of this year that a driver loses the rear end a bit goes to correct it, and then the car bites and then spears them off into the wall. Um, similar to what you often see in IndyCar, that an IndyCar will get loose, the driver will, um, or inexperienced oval driver will go to correct it, and then the aero comes back in and you're into the concrete at 200 miles an hour. But we've we've seen it a few times now. Um, I think Albon's shunt at Silverstone was quite similar. So it may be a characteristic of these super high downforce cars that you, you have a little bit of a moment on an exit um, you try to correct it, and then that huge amount of downforce comes back and comes back and bites you. So maybe it won't be the last time we see something like that. It's tricky to know how much of the, how much input the curb had into it because you know we we saw him slide and correct it, but it was when that sort of right rear tire was was on the curb and transitioning from asphalt to curb to the um, astroturf that lay beyond that it spat him off and it was it was probably just the the, the change in the surface that maybe influenced the, the trajectory of the car and it, it's just the, the speed at that point that, that influenced what happened so it's it, it's very tricky to say what might happen very very easy for us to sort of sit at home and say well he shouldn't have corrected it then but um, what, what else was he supposed to do spin harmlessly uh, it, it's very very easy to 
pontificate from our armchairs about what it's like in a car that's have that has that many g forces acting on it good job one of us actually isn't paid to do that with their driver rings or anything but um <laughs> we'll, we'll let that slide by yeah what, what will you be scoring him in the driver lowly lowly um Moving on, that the accident um, caused the big the the big strategy call of the race, which meant that um, both Hamilton and Bottas came in on the same lap. Mercedes double stacked their cars. Uh, that was again Verstappen had a slight chance to get out ahead of the second Mercedes, but Bottas just uh, just had enough margin to get out ahead. They all went on to the hard tires, and like the British Grand Prix, Luke, as you said, I put in that tweet, they all went on to the hard tires and were good. we basically running to the end on a one stopper. I mean, there was there were sort of moments in the second stint where it looked like oh Mercedes are telling Bottas asked to push obviously told Hamilton at the same time but are they going to be coming in soon no they weren't they were just basically edging away from Verstappen putting the pressure on him being like all right come with us if you can't if you can brilliant if we stop we'll cover you off um so yeah that that that's what that's what did for the strategy but uh, again it did give Bottas a second opportunity which was at the restart what did you make of that Luke because I sort of when I when I saw it happening live and I think I put this in my race report for autosport.com it just looked like Hamilton caught him napping a little bit as a safety car had come in and they were heading towards the bus stop chicane yeah definitely I think it looked like uh, Bottas has sort of had more maybe more to worry about on what was going on behind him really than, than ahead of him which was uh, I think yeah again this is just another thing that you get by winning what nine, uh, 89 Grand Prix now and, and being just such a, a tour de force in Formula 1 for so many years is that you, you know how to nail a restart I mean Lewis Hamilton can do that in his sleep and uh, again it was that was really the second bite of the cherry that Bottas had the second chance to and his only other chance really to, to stand any chance of winning this Grand Prix and again Hamilton just had him seen off and cornered off and I think Spa of all places like it's a track that really it being the man in front is such a disadvantage at times because just because of that long long run when you come out of La Source all the way to the end of the Kemmel Strait and into Le Combe. like that is such a it's so dangerous and you can be so exposed there but he just both times was able to cover it off so so simply and uh, yeah I just think he just deserves full credit for that and Bottas had absolutely no response uh, to Hamilton's performance today uh, he said after the race uh, he was asked like at any point did you think you were quicker than Lewis and he said he was rather sort of diplomatic and said oh well I can't really say because obviously I'm running behind and therefore my my tyres are struggling and I'm in dirty air and all of that but I mean no I think to, uh, Lewis Hamilton was on another level again today and I think Bottas was really made to firmly look second best and there was a point when I was thinking well Verstappen's going to get in here as well because uh, the Red Bull was sort of lurking for a little bit before fading away but uh, yeah a big gulf between the two Mercedes drivers today and that gulf was there yesterday in qualifying wasn't it John I mean we talked about this on the podcast last night just what is the lap what's the onboard Hamilton posted it on his uh, social media channels it's a good good opportunity to just watch it again and it's the way he treats that car is absolutely just it just it just does everything he wants at the first time of asking and he's just got the confidence to to be able to deliver with it but Bottas isn't that half a second is a big gap again he's lost out he's been defeated in this race you know he's obviously he, he said in the press conference it he's quite pissed off that Lewis Hamilton is now beating him in qualifying because of course they were matched for pole positions last year but it's just it just doesn't feel like it's it's ever really coming together for him this season after that first race in Austria. I think it must be so frustrating as a sportsman to so you spend your entire career since you start karting to try to get into the best Formula One car. You do that, so you fight well, you work your way up, you make sacrifices, you get in Formula One, you earn your chance, you're put in the best Formula One car. Then you just so happen to have a teammate who's may well go down as the best Formula One driver of all time uh, up against you. You get comprehensively beaten in the first season, but you start making progress. Then you make gains, and Valtteri, you know, has been so close this year. We, you know, we we're talking about normally one tenth maybe difference now in qualifying between them, and it swings around and sometimes goes one way or another. But there's so little difference in it, and there's only tiny little factors are now separating Lewis and Valtteri. But ultimately, it's those tiny little factors that make Lewis so brilliant. Uh, they make him stand out because they are the little factors that other drivers just don't have access to. So, you know, for Valtteri to feel that you're in the best position you've ever been in your career, driving better than you've ever been, and it's still not good enough, that must be soul-destroying. Well, it's interesting. I saw a, I saw a tweet after the race which said uh, F1 is really missing Nico Rosberg because he was able to defeat Lewis Hamilton 
and get under his skin. That was a big factor. You know, he was able to. Uh, I was able to upset him at several times. Uh, the way they, the way they collided on track and things like that. But what was what? Well, how I'm going to link this back to this race? Because don't worry, I am going somewhere with this. Was uh, Codders? There was a radio message in the first stint where Bottas said to his engineer, um, "We have one overtake left, effectively, or one overtake to use." don't we and uh, and his engineer is like yes we do but we have agreed not to use it on the other car and Bottas quite bitingly comes back with I don't remember that or I've never heard of that did you think that was the first sign of Bottas perhaps trying to be a bit more bit more biting in this battle with Mercedes because what he's doing at the moment isn't going to cut it does he need to employ some Nico Rosberg-esque tactics to win? I didn't know how to take that. And actually, you know, while, while I had my feet up in the Lord Heseltine Theatre and drinking my mug of tea, as it happened, not red wine, and uh, it's just come back to me. I don't think I've retrieved the mug of tea from the Lord Heseltine Theatre. It's probably uh, still sitting there with its little undrunk bit at the bottom festering, which will have to go through the dishwasher. But um, uh, anyway, it, it's, it's very tricky with his deadpan enunciation to work out whether he's being serious or not. Obviously, you know, he's a racing driver. He doesn't want to get it handed to him by his teammate every week, but he knows his place in that team. So after listening to it a few times, I thought it was just sort of like a witty retort stroke comeback, which he might easily have followed up with saying, by the way, anyone who says Nico Rosberg should come back on Twitter should delete their account. There we go. That's that. That, that journalist told. Um, Luke, you you joined the Toto Wolf uh, media call after the race. Um, he did explain what that was all about, though, didn't he? He did. Yeah. So I asked him about that and said, like, can you just clarify what the rules are between your two drivers? And he, he said there are no rules. Like he said, they're free to race. Like absolutely uh, able to. Um, and he said that basically, uh, Bottas had asked about that, asking, um, do we have that? that one overtake left and obviously with eyes forward thinking that I can use that to catch Lewis and potentially overtake him and uh, he was reminded that no you, d- you don't have that available we said we wouldn't use that against each other and uh, Toto Wolf explained that what the thinking was was that they wanted to save that overtake and save that higher mode in case they needed to fend off from Max Verstappen behind um, and that he was sort of the real threat so I think with that like it was just a and, Total Wolf called it a miscommunication between uh, the team and Bottas. So I think it was, uh, that's that's probably all it was, that the team had not sort of clarified that you've got this higher engine mode, but we only want you to use it when you absolutely need to, to protect the team result. You're not going to use it to try and catch your teammate and potentially sort of harm your own uh, prospects of finishing second and cost us the one too, because, uh, yep, that's what Mercedes are ultimately after and going for. Um, with regards to sort of the Rosberg tweet, um, I... I can kind of understand that because I think that what we're missing is maybe having someone on the other side of that garage who is willing to go to fairly destructive ends to defeat Lewis Hamilton, which is maybe what it takes to defeat Lewis Hamilton just because he is that bloody good. Um, and I think Valtteri Bottas just is not that driver. Like he, he won't, I don't think he will cause any sort of rifts or divisions or anything within the team um, to, 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 to get that. I think as, as Cod has said, like I think he does know his place and ultimately that is that is to be the supporter and to be the wingman as much as he may test being called that that that's the crux of it and uh, I think that he knows that going to the sort of the ends that Rosberg did it would it would have been very hard for that relationship to have lasted long term if Rosberg hadn't called it quits because by the end there was no relationship like it was very bad and I think Mercedes had been very open about just how how bad things got and that it was a toxic environment that had to be changed and and that has changed like Mercedes have hit incredible new levels I think right the way through uh, the last sort of three four years and you've got to think that were Rosberg still there or were sort of that element on either side of the garage like being absolutely at each other's throats would they have been as successful as they have been and I I don't think they would have been so I think that I think the harmony Bottas brings I think that's always been a, a huge huge uh, asset and credit to him and uh, yeah it just means that unfortunately you can be what seven races into a season and already have the writing on the wall for your title hopes indeed well just before we come up, up to the next big topic I wanted us to discuss on this podcast um, there was another uh, interesting radio message from Valtteri Bottas where he said that uh, sort of his left side was getting a bit numb as he was pressing the brake pedal we got asked about this in the press conference and he said that it's happened a few times now uh, in, in, in his time at Mercedes where basically I think just the arrangement of the brake pedal they've got in there causes him a bit of trouble so it'll be worth asking them I think at the upcoming races whether they're going to employ a different fix or if there's anything he can do either himself in his preparations or the way he's sitting in the car or using the brake pedal whatever just to um, alleviate that for him but yeah let's let's come on to to the sort of the final third of the race really because 
at one point he looked quite interesting. It looked like Verstappen was going to be able to really stay with Bottas. He stayed within one and a half seconds uh, for quite a while. He was much happier on the hard tyres than he had been on the mediums. But then Mercedes just gave the call. Right, Valtteri, give it everything you've got. Hamilton, as I said, had already started accelerating and the Mercedes just went clear and Verstappen couldn't live with it. He then um, picks up quite a big vibration on his tyres that he was quite vocal about uh, and in the end, he and Red Bull uh, backed off, as did the Mercedes drivers, because as I said, they were quite concerned about what happened in the British Grand Prix because, it was, like I said, Luke, again, sorry to bring back uh, my tweet that you mentioned at the start, I thought it was really similar to the British Grand Prix. It was a pretty dull race, the British Grand Prix, I'm talking about, sorry, enlivened by the fact that the tyres blew up at the end. In fact, I had my race report completely written and I had to totally uh, redo the intro and then uh, add on a new ending uh, in the press conference afterwards Verstappen was um, he, he didn't hold back he basically was just like this was a terrible race it was really boring I spent 38 laps out of 44 managing my tyres at a racetrack as good as Spa and again it's more it's more questions um, and more problems for Pirelli really because they're damned if they do and they're damned if they're damned if they don't it seems because the driver's are never going to be happy fans are you know aren't going to be happy with boring races it's just a really tricky situation for them but yeah John what did you make that the fact that again we're talking about tyres and the leading drivers being frustrated with what they're having to do in the races I think it proves today that it's the it's the perfect storm for delivering a really boring race is to have the option of the hard tyre that can last an awful long part of the race then the drivers are forced to go onto it earlier than they would like so and then rather than um those tyres running out and needing to drastically change strategy. The teams and drivers are so good these days, they just realise they pull back the pace so you drive at 85% uh, and then you tool around till the chequered flag comes out and that's pretty much it as long as the tyres hold on. Um, I think maybe, you know, we've got these tyres again next year, so I think there's two options that we need to look at. Either Pirelli start going a bit more aggressive on their tyre choices and we go softer and softer and you just live with the consequences of drivers moaning about degradation. Or we think up some sporting rules. Why not have a rule that forces you to run all three compounds in the race? Because that would deliver some variability. Some you could get rid of the softs or the hards in the first stint, or maybe rotate them under safety car. But if you've got to run all three compounds during a race, it guarantees two stops. And I think it would make enough variability to do anything. And best of all, it's not going to cost a penny because those tyres are already here. Um, they're already being run. And if without that rule, um, at the end of the race, they all get binned anyway. So let's do it. That's some incredible logic and common sense, John. I think in Formula One is very hard to find nowadays. So, um, But I fully agree. And uh, it's been a, a big topic of late. Uh, Lewis Hamilton said after the, the Spanish Grand Prix that the drivers are really sort of pushing on Pirelli to produce a better quality tyre. And he expanded on it earlier this week in, in the press conference saying that they uh, basically he wanted a tyre that was like as grippy as the Hypersoft that they had uh, a couple of years ago, but was also long lasting and could be pushed. And it's kind of like... A, it's a they're they're two things that can't really work in tandem like you can't have both and uh Toto Wolf spoke about it the other day as well and he said that's uh it's really probably impossible to actually get there um the FIA have been quite open about things um the head of single seaters Nicholas Tambasis he said that they probably gave Pirelli an unrealistic target letter with what they wanted to achieve with these tyres but I think it is something that yeah they do they do need to fix because otherwise we are just gonna have more of these sort of boring one-stop races and I like the idea of going to a steps off to compound we saw at the uh, 70th anniversary Grand Prix at Silverstone what kind of havoc that caused and that was a fascinating race a really really interesting one to watch um, even if we didn't see like passes for the lead or any sort of like anything like that but there was enough strategic variety between all the drivers that they could all do different things and Max Verstappen won that race brilliantly and uh, and also I really like the idea of all three compounds as well this was uh, if I may plug a sister podcast this is something that uh, Jess McFadden and I spoke about on the Is It Just Me podcast a, a few weeks ago and uh, yeah we want that kind of extra variety I think in F1 to keep things interesting avoid these slow burner boring races where we get sort of 20 laps in and it's like oh go make a coffee or something like that with what small element of strategic variety we enjoyed um, we, we actually ended up with more or less the same result that was previously ordained so you had Pierre Gasly starting on the hard tyre I was kind of um, I had my pen out was actually tapping my iPad in the hope that the Pirelli engineer had pressed the wrong button on their iPad and he was actually on the medium uh, in in the opening laps when he was going so very quickly and not just 
making up spaces from his grid spot but overtaking people i kind of thought this really didn't doesn't augur well for the, for the grand prix although he was sort of slightly their, their strategy was slightly upset by the timing of the safety car period as it was um for racing point and um their their tactic of keeping uh, Sergio Perez on the soft tyres. It's interesting that both those teams doubled down on that strategy and just carried on anyway as if the safety car period hadn't happened. And yet they pretty much ended up where they where they might have been here. Perez had to fight his way through from the back. Gasly had a lot of work to do. You, you might even argue that Gasly finished for a, a couple of positions behind where he, we might otherwise have done. But I, I suppose they were sort of locked into that. So it, it is unfortunate, isn't it, that even even within the parameters that we have, people who try to exercise some variation still end up either where they would have been or or further back. John, just coming back to the problems with the tyres and, and things like that, throwing a curveball question out there, mm-hmm. would a tyre war help this? Don't think so. Um I know people talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great to get two tyre manufacturers going up against each other? And, you know, it was, I, I lived through the Mitchell and Bridgestone era and it was quite a fun time. You know, some great racing, some great politics. Uh, I think one of my favourite political moments was when uh, one of the tyre manufacturers leaked me a photo they'd taken of one of the other members of the other tyre manufacturer wearing a chemical mask while treating some tyres in a inside a um, motorhome. Uh, which then caused some fuss about secret chemicals being used and all that sort of thing. So it was all good fun. But unfortunately in this era, you know, we need to keep costs under control. We've got a budget cap coming in. Uh, Second, you start developing tyres, the costs are going to get out of control. We don't have much testing, so how are these tyres going to get tested? Uh, And then inevitably, while while you do get some good competition, sometimes with tyre wars, what also happens is one tyre manufacturer ends up doing a much better job than the other then the teams either all charge, the top teams all charge to one side to capitalise on that, and the um, midfield teams all end up on the other one for commercial reasons, so the grid gets divided, uh, or successful teams suddenly find they're on the wrong tyre and can't compete, so you've taken out one of the main competitors. So I think having, you know, while there are pros to a tyre war, I think ultimately having a single tyre manufacturer is the right way to go, um, but the key is that tyre manufacturer needs to deliver the tyres and needs to have the rules that guarantee good races. We've covered the leaders. Let's get on to everybody behind. Like I said at the beginning, it was a great race for the Renault team. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo showed absolutely incredible pace at the end. It was just a series of fast lap after fast lap, personal best after personal best. And then, as I said, he ends up with the extra point for the fastest lap. But it was interesting. I think he was kicking himself a little bit because it took him a fair while to get past Pierre Gasly after the safety car. Now, he was also behind Perez at the time, as you said, God, as they were sort of left out there. I think Racing Point were just hoping that the uh, the one-stopper would uh, would come a cropper for everybody ahead of them and then Perez would have an advantage that he ultimately never did. Um, but Perez gets out of his way with the stop, but it takes him a good sort of four or five laps to get past Gasly. And this may have an effect on his uh, driver ranking for, for Autosport Magazine and Autosport.com Plus. It may indeed, because the Renault was so fast this weekend. It really was, you know, the, the third fastest car. Uh, and Ricardo actually thought that cost him the chance to fight Verstappen for a podium. Now, we know that the leaders, the top three, were really backing off at the end with their tyres. But Verstappen was under serious pressure with that vibration. So if, if Ricardo hadn't lost, I think it was a roughly about five seconds that it cost him uh, being stuck behind Gasly. That makes all the difference. At the flag, he's only like 3.4 seconds behind Verstappen. Now, as I said, that would be exaggerated by the fact that Verstappen had backed off. But still, you know, he would have been able to be uh, to be in a, in a position to make more of a fight of it. But, John, nevertheless, a great weekend for Renault. Why were they suddenly so good? And can they keep it up? Two factors on why they're so good. Um, the first one is that the Renault, some characteristic of the car, basically makes it come alive when they go into low downforce trim. They don't quite understand why that is so. Um, I think there's been a lot of head scratching. There will be a lot of head scratching. Endstone to try to get to the bottom of that. But both Daniel and Esteban say, take the downforce off, you go to the smaller wings, and the car feels better balanced. They're more on top of it. It's more competitive. So, I mean, they're really bullish for Monza next weekend. And the second factor is, Daniel thinks he's found a sweet spot in the setup. Um, If you go back to Silverstone, remember in Friday practice, um, they he was super, super confident that they'd found something with the setup um, and unlocked this secret potential, this one lap that gave him a level of confidence. He said they found it again here on Friday at Spa. Um, 
so he thinks they found this thing that's unlocked lots of potential in the car. He thinks it can be used at different downforce levels as well. So, you know, it's a team on the roll, and it, this could be bad news for Cyril Abitable because he's got a bet with um, Daniel Ricciardo that if they get a podium this year, um, he has to get a tattoo. So Daniel chooses the tattoo. Cyril can choose the location. And uh, it was quite amusing tonight. Daniel was talking about how nervous Cyril needs to be for Monza. And uh, he's already seen some mock-ups of um, Cyril Abitable with a Mike Tyson face tattoo. So looking fun. (laughs) Yes, I mean, I dread to think what an Australian would choose as a tattoo for their boss. I think it would be something reasonably lewd, let's put it that way. Um, But yeah, um, Luke, what did you make of of Daniel Ricciardo going up against Max Verstappen right back at the very start on the first lap? They had a good side-by-side moment as they got uh, through Lake Om. Ricciardo got a great uh, great toe off the the leaders in front of him and then was able to launch an attack on his former teammates. Yeah, how did you see that one? It was brilliant. It was really cool. I think that was uh, one of the real sort of moments of the race in terms of wheel-to-wheel racing. And it may have only been a few corners, but uh, yeah, it was really exciting because we know we know uh, Daniel Ricciardo's affinity to quote lick the stamp and send it and really go for those moves and like really try and surprise who he's he's going up against. I mean, he's he's a, one of the best overtakers in the Formula One field and uh, up against Max Verstappen, his former teammate, but obviously another amazing overtaker and brilliant driver like that's that's really exciting so uh yeah i was that was probably the closest i got to being on the edge of my seat all the way through that uh grand prix today and sort of edging a little bit closer towards the television uh because it was it was really cool and i think that is the that's the kind of racing that you what you just want to see more often and it was just a shame that the moment that verstappen was able to just get ahead as they uh sort of came down the hill and uh, were into the uh, no-name corner and uh into the second sector and that and that was that was like deal done basically like there was no way Ricardo was going to get back ahead of Verstappen and it's uh, it's just a shame that you do see these big sort of gulfs um, emerge through the field and although he was able to sort of recover a lot of that towards the end as you said like it's just uh, it's just disappointing that we can't really rely on that being a more regular thing that we we can't see Ricardo going up against any of the sort of leading well, I guess leading two teams now, not three, um, and have any chance of actually fighting right the way through a race. So, uh, yeah, but that was sort of a, a little taste of what Ricardo can still do, uh, hopefully what we'll see more of in the future in Formula 1. Um, but, yeah, very nice to sort of see that old, uh, uh, I wouldn't say rivalry, because I don't think they were ever rivals, but, um, yeah, uh, head-to-head between Verstappen and Ricardo rekindled, even if just for a lap or two. Well, Codders, at what what part of your seat were you occupying when you saw Pierre Gasly uh, being edged towards the endurance pit wall by Sergio Perez very early on into the race and Gasly then nip by and make an incredible pass into Eau Rouge? Well, I have to say I was very pleased that the sofa we have in the the Lord Heseltine Theatre was all enclosing. I did take my feet off the beanbag at that point because um, that was quite a moment, wasn't it? You know, we we saw, uh, you know, just just a couple of years ago what, what happened when... Uh, Perez and Esteban Ocon were teammates and Perez basically put him in the wall and nearly took his took his wheel off basically and and that that could have been a huge accident back then and he nearly did the same thing to Pierre Gasly and and when you think of 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 what happened in that same area this time last year with 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 Gasly's mate Antoine Hubert with with horrendous consequences um, I, I thought it was very brave of Pierre to put his car there. It was very ballsy and it was a fantastically executed overtake. And um, I've, I've had the privilege not only of riding my bicycle flat out down that straight towards Eau Rouge. I've actually been in the in the F1 two-seater, albeit in the wet. And, and believe you me, when, when you're going f- the, the full berries towards that corner, ev- even with a driver who isn't actually trying to scare you and, and has, has a car that is, is a basically a cut and shut mid-90s Minardi that could snap at any point, um, it's actually still pretty frightening, the, the G-forces. So to, to be a racing driver doing that and knowing that you are just millimetres away from the, from the wall is, is a tremendous achievement on the part of Pierre Gasly. I'm very glad that Perez sort of stood back uh, from from going further on that one, and, and it was a, it was a beautifully executed overtake and very thrilling, very much like the Mark Webber on Alonso, uh, but from opposite sides of the track that we that we saw ten years ago. 
Indeed, and, and God, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know the, the the safety car really undid Gasly's race, sadly, because uh, I think I think his teammate Daniel Kvyat was rather annoyed, you know, sort of in hindsight, because he started on the mediums, AlphaTauri split his strategy, put Gasly on the hards, and that was just the, the better race tire, certainly at the start, um, because it just meant that that Gasly could go on the attack, and he he basically says if there was a safety car any time in the first twenty laps it was going to have a massively detrimental effect in our race. And obviously that is what did happen because he actually thinks that he lost so much time by the fact that he couldn't stop um, under the safety car and everybody else did. It cost him 20 seconds and he reckoned he might have finished fifth which would have been a tremendous result. Uh, obviously, that you know things would have had to have played out in in, in, in in a precise way for that to have come across. But nevertheless, I thought eighth place for Pierre Gasly was a very very good result. Um, Alex Albon also uh, also another another good result. You know, it's it's getting better for him. The the problem as ever is that he's just not on the same level as Max Verstappen, and and it continues to be continues to be exposed that way. Uh, Lando Norris recovered from an off on the uh, on the first lap at Lake Om. Uh, he sort of his race came alive towards the end. Really, he was able to go on the attack, although. I was quite amused by uh, he sort of snapped at his uh, engineer on the radio because he thought he was going to be told one thing. In fact, it was a it was a warning saying don't start uh, don't keep running wide at turn nine. Uh, but we shall we shall end. Uh, we've got going to have a couple of topics to get through on this podcast. Um, and the last sort of big one really is of course Ferrari. I think we knew it was going to be a very very difficult race for them going in, given what we'd seen in practice and qualifying. Um, but it was just more. It was just more of the same, really. More pain for Ferrari, Codders. What did you make of that? I think the moment for me was. Let, let me find it in my notes here. I've I've got lots of triple question marks uh, in in my notes here, but um, yeah, it, it was it was when Kvyat went. Yes, he 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 went. He drove past Charles Leclerc even before they opened the DRS. So they, that's the Minardi passing the Ferrari uh, on a straight before opening DRS. It, it was just an extraordinary moment. And that brought home to me just, just how far down the rabbit hole Ferrari is at the moment. You know, they've obviously been pegged back on the engine for, for reasons which will not be shared with us. But the whole car concept is based on having an engine that can that can punch what what is a draggy car through the air and it's not now it's not now able to do that and the results are in front of us every week and someone actually replied to one of my many sarcastic tweets saying can't they can't they revert to the 20 uh, the 2019 car and kind of thought, well there's technically there's nothing to stop them doing that but there's a whole lot there's a whole pr minefield awaits them Charles Leclerc got up ahead of uh, several of the cars that are qualified ahead of him because he made an absolutely brilliant start using the soft tyres that they, they went with. They didn't have to choose the soft tyre because it was an unfancied race tyre because they started outside the top 10, but nevertheless they did it. Paid off at the start, but obviously he was a little bit exposed and then had a couple of long pit stops, one for tyres. And then because as a precaution, which never really got explained sort of afterwards, um, they had to top up the pneumatic pressure in the engine, which also meant that um, he was a bit annoyed at that second long stop and Ferrari uh, very keen not to tell him exactly what was going on. Just before Giovinazzi had his accident, the two Alfa Romeos were just about to come within DRS range of the two Ferraris. And, and I was about to compose a tweet to that effect when, of course, uh, Antonio had his had his shuntation. And, and that would have been very interesting, wouldn't it, if the Alfa Romeos had DRSed past the Ferraris? Well, that is, that is what Kimi Raikkonen ended up doing with uh, with uh, Sebastian Vettel and uh, fin- ended up finishing ahead. Another very strong drive, I thought, from Kimi Raikkonen. Um, had a bit of a poor start. His car went into anti-stall as he tried to get it off the line. Another good drive for, for Kimi Raikkonen. But, John, you, you attended the uh, Ferrari uh, media session again in a, on a different uh, um, um, video call app, which I don't think is wildly successful with the Ferrari one. But, um, yeah, what was the team's explanation? How And what was the mood as well between Mattia Bonotto and the drivers afterwards? Uh, the mood was a bit weird, really, because obviously the media wanted answers to why Ferrari had had a bit of a shambolic weekend, really. I think got the sense that Mattia and the drivers were quite amused by the knowing that the journalists were going to barrage them with some tough questions. So you could sense in their body language they, they found it a little bit amusing and were, were kind of semi-amused at some of the questions being thrown at them about whether Benotto's the, the right man to go forward and whether the drivers annoyed by the strategy it kind of hides the fact that Ferrari, you know, have some big answers to find as to just what's gone wrong this weekend. And I think it's one of those classic scenarios where one one factor goes against a team and then you end up taking gambles on on certain issues or certain characteristics and then the whole thing tumbles out of control. So they're down on power with a draggy car. 
um, which means they've got to take the downforce, what downforce they've got, they've got to take it off to not be so terrible on the straights. Then they can't get enough heat in the tyres, so the tyres don't get warm, and you just end up in this spiral. Then you take a gamble because you're so slow to add more downforce onto the car to um, because you think the rain's going to come. Then the rain doesn't come, so you're even slower on that front. Um, so it's just numerous factors have gone away. And I think Mattia you know, was asked by the Italians tonight whether it was a crisis. He says, no, this isn't a crisis, but we're in the middle of a storm. So... I think they've got a tough few days in Maranello to come. Feels like we are literally in the middle of the storm, given um, all the rain that's currently falling on our car. Is, is, is that the police the other, behind the you? The you? Are you about to be arrested for no, offences? No. Anyway, moving on. Um, John, do you reckon that? Um, do you reckon that the fact that all of these media uh, events are having to be done via video, do you think that changes the atmosphere? And do you think it makes it slightly easier for the drivers and the team principals to to give some of the answers they're giving? Yeah, I think it does change because a lot of the um, a lot can be read into body language. A lot can be read into um, you know how you phrase questions and the the, the manner of which press conferences take place. Um, and the more formal press conferences are, which they are with these kind of Zoom calls and Teams calls and this WebEx strange WebEx system that Ferrari use that is totally. Uh, um, not really fit for purpose because the audio is terrible and the system doesn't work. Um, but it does change change the thing. And we don't get that those little glimmers of information or how they're asking questions or responding to semi-answers. So there's not the ability to follow up. Uh, and also, one of the key factors is you know being in the paddock. Finally, you've still got press conferences, which in theory are still taking place. But you could often garner a lot more information with a you know two-minute chat with someone after a press conference just to clarify some aspects which you don't get now so i think there's i think there's less less proper information flowing out um which is bad news for us but maybe the teams quite like it i think ferrari of all teams like um, you, you mentioned that their webex platform which is uh, it makes them sound like they're in a washing machine which is not very good when it comes to transcribing that but it's uh, but yeah it's even and it is a very little thing but it does make it very it's an extra sort of layer and I guess an extra buffer of maybe protection for them that I don't think they can see the people asking the questions. I don't think on on the platform they use or anything like that. But one thing I, I must say I felt with the Ferrari press sessions this year, not only have they been very limited, but I've actually, I've actually found it. I found all three of those attending Bonotto, Vettel and Leclerc to be quite disengaged with the whole thing and uh, I remember a couple of weeks ago I was asking a question Leclerc was on his phone Vettel was leaning over to talk to Leclerc and Bonotto was sort of having a chat with them as well and there was they weren't actually listening and I mentioned this to to another team and they were like we would not accept that from our drivers like ultimately we know the press uh, the press and we may ask pointed questions particularly with Ferrari but there is at least that level of respect to actually listen to us engage with us and we have that uh, um, I mean Mercedes for example all three of them will Hamilton Bottas are excellent they like look at who's on screen they they talk to us properly and at no point does it look like their sort of attention's waning or anything like that whereas with the Ferrari guys like it's very much like they they don't want to be there um they know they're getting all these questions and it just it just feels a bit of a shambles to be honest and I think that it's a time when there isn't a great story for them to tell admittedly like they are in a very difficult position and that does make it very hard for them to I guess be answering all these questions about is your is your future secure and what about next year and everything like that but the least they can do is to actually sort of face the music and right now I really don't feel they are and I think that it's just getting a bit it's just been a very sort of difficult 18 months I guess in terms of everything with the engine testament and, and all of that but to be honest you just kind of think well yeah just at least have at least have a bit more respect to actually understand why we're asking these questions and that we're trying to get a better understanding of the position they're in. Codders, I'll give you the last question of the podcast. Are you expecting this Ferrari shambles, which was particularly bad in Belgium, uh, to continue next weekend, the first of their two, or actually three, home races in 2020? I'm not very confident that they're going to be able to turn it around in this short order because it, it seems to be getting worse rather than better, doesn't it? Uh, we're, we're seeing the, the, the lap time deficits year on year actually either be static or increase so was it but they're more than a second slower this year around spa than they were last year in in qualifying i think was the statistic so 
Um, that's not a good look. It's it's a statistic that's been borne out on the other circuits we've seen, uh, proportionally depending on length of circuit, of course. Um, and so the I think the the conclusion we can draw from that is that at best they're not making any progress. Um, at worst, wh- whatever they're doing is is not making the car better. It might even be making it worse. And as other teams start to make progress within within the limited uh, window they have to to develop this this season and next, uh, I, I can only see them tumbling further backwards. Uh, the, you know, the, the, it's a big problem they have with the engine having been pegged back, pegged back and the the car just carrying a lot of drag and, and not working as it should. And, and it, it seems like there's there's too many variables for them to solve, that there's too much going wrong. And it seems that other aspects of their operation are now going wrong in sympathy. So the whole strategy and organisation is falling apart as well. And when you're seeing the, the, the drivers and the engineers arguing with one another about strategy it all speaks it speaks as a whole of a team that's lost its way massively so it, it's a shame but uh, but as, as we said earlier we, we're now talking about the top two teams rather than the top three indeed well we shall watch with keen interest to see how ferrari respond what their what their body language what everything is like in monza obviously we won't be able to see it properly up close and personal in the paddock because the coronavirus protocols will still be in effect uh, but anyway uh, thank you everybody for joining us on this podcast and uh, john and i will attempt to make the rest of our journey home in the pouring rain hopefully the windows uh, get unsteamed quite quickly we'll see how we go uh, and then we shall continue our our, our the, the, onto the second week of our uh, three-week adventure into on our, as we start our journey to Monza tomorrow. So, thank you, everybody. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and is available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis, and the usual stunning photography. And, of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about that sound? You're listening to a set of GE appliances, complete with all you need to keep food fresh, dishes clean, and everything else stress-free. Making this the sound of savings on top brand appliances. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off select GE appliances right now. Offer valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. U.S. only. See store or online for details. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.